Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this Survivor Story Series episode, our guest is Karen Gosby, domestic abuse and course of control survivor, advocate for policy and system reform, and author of her memoir, A Perfect Nightmare, My Glittering Marriage and How It Almost Cost Me My Life. The book chronicles Karen's journey to consciousness about her abuse, the roles her family and friends played in her life, and the ways in which society and culture shaped her views and definitions of herself, her worth, and relationships. Throughout her conversation, we ask Karen to share abuser tactics, signs of abuse, and upstander tips. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for having me. I had your book on my nightstand for quite a while. And, you know, every time I read a survivor memoir, there's still that preconception like, oh, these are all going to be kind of similar. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, that our internalized misogyny, or maybe just whatever it is. And when I read it, it was actually not that I didn't, I expected anything less of you, Karen, but I, I was really pleasantly surprised that you had so many rich examples that I'm sure, you know, I've come across in different books before, but I just thought were really well put together in terms of painting this picture of abuse and coercive control long-term that wasn't physically centered on physical abuse. So I really appreciated that. And you, and, and I will get into, you know, some of the quotes that you had that so succinctly characterized different moments in your relationship that I'm sure are common, but you did it so well, so eloquently. So I want to thank you for your book and I'm happy that I'm able to have this conversation with you. Well, thank you. Um, I guess that's exactly what I wanted to achieve. I wanted to reinforce how common it was and consistent these things occur right under your nose and people don't really entirely understand it. Uh, They don't uh, have a name for it. I I didn't want to coerce of controls just coming out and I didn't want to repetitively talk about it and talk about, you know, break it down. I wanted to tell my story so people could identify with what they were experiencing through what had occurred in in my my own situation and my family situation. So let's um, start by giving some context to your life and your relationship. Uh, you're based in Canada and I, we've had a whole series we had a whole series of interviews uh, with some police officers, female police officers from Canada and we had a whole, panel with them for DV Awareness Month in October last year. And I have to say, you know, I think especially last year in the thick of things, as Americans having gone through Trump, we have this sort of idealized view of Canada. Of course, your prime minister is such a contrast to Trump. And and so I think that just starting from there is good because everybody, oh, and then also I forgot to mention, I don't know if you watched The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, 
<laughs> so Canada yeah. is like considered the free country, like the nirvana where everybody escapes to. Um, and so I think that people who don't know much about Canada might think, um, might might look at it with rose-colored glasses. And I'm glad that there's this perspective that yes, you know, this happens everywhere. So I, I'd like to just start with that. With, with that. To what extent has Canadian culture, has it informed the shaping of the different dynamics, the socialization of the people involved in your story? Um, and how really, how different is it from socialization elsewhere, either in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world? I, I mean, I personally think just from my own experience that it's not a lot different. I, you know, everybody that is familiar with it, there's the perpetrator handbook that I've had conversations with people and I've said, well, thankfully Trump came to power. And as soon as I say that, I met with extreme opposition saying, oh, you don't support him, do you? And I don't support him. But what I mean by that was um, all of a sudden there was so much more information available. And that was what really helped me inform and put context to my situation. And, and it was it's crazy um, how familiar, how similar these, these behaviors are. It doesn't matter where you are in the, it globally, but with, in the context of Canada, just going back, you know, having that perception that we're nice and, you know, that uh, I think that things happen, but to a lesser degree. And, um, you know, I did listen to your, your podcast with the um, enforcement. One thing about Canada is it's, pocketed it's you know it's dealt with differently municipally provincially mostly provincially and and the alignment is really we don't really have as strong as a cohesive force behind a lot of our leaders and so we have the ability to get hidden and things can you know really sort of be doing really good in certain pockets and then other pockets not so good of Canada you know, I think the perception, um, and I'm glad you debunked that in your story, is that toxic masculinity or very traditional um, definitions of masculinity are less influential in Canada. You know, that maybe there's more more self-assured men in your country, you know, who who don't need to assert, you know, their their status or authority in traditional ways through domination and violence. And control. And so I think about when you talked about your husband, when you first met him, let's start there. You met him in 1991 at the University of Calgary. And the setting seemed so familiar to me with regard to American colleges and you know how you described it. Tell us about what it was like to first meet him, your ex-husband, and what that dynamic was. Well, I, I guess when you talk about the... Um, you have the innate behaviors that happen on campuses and it's centered around partying, athleticism, and, you know, there's a different, there's a definite collegiate culture. I had moved from Edmonton to Calgary and there's a deep seated rivalry. So if a lot of people locally that'll be listening to this, they'll think, oh my gosh, how could I do that? But I moved just to get away from my own family trauma just to have some space. And I wanted to start my life afresh and not have the 
what had happened in my childhood follow me around a little and start a new beginning. Right away, the only way that um, I was able to sort of meet people would be through, you know, the bars and the parties and going to the games. And George in particular, he was a big man on campus. And he was a big man in campus because he had figured out a way to throw parties. And it was centered around the whole drinking and, and you know, everybody partaking in these, these types of activities. You know, he, he accomplished a lot as a young person in the fact that he was working uh, full time. He was going to school and he had figured out a way to have these parties, like I said, and make quite a bit of money. But he was in student senior as well. And so a lot of people knew who he was. And he thrived with being a person of power and importance and, uh, you know, just people sort of wanting him to give them something to a certain degree. So we met, he had a a scare of possibly having a brain tumor. And my dad was a neurologist up in Edmonton and he had caught wind and he had had a discussion and asked me if I knew who this guy was. And I actually, Terry was kind of not one of those people that liked to be in those circles. I I made a, a point of not going to the parties and, you know, just rolling my eyes at that. And just the fact that he asked me, all of a sudden we had that opportunity to have a conversation and I bumped into him after one of his parties in a different location. And we just sort of built, um, you know, a conversation around and, and started to talk. I didn't know at that time, it was around Christmas time that he was engaged to someone else. And, you know, I'd asked him to uh, accompany me to a party that ended up being close to where he grew up. And at that point, he decided he needed to reveal this, the truth of the matter and the fact that he was engaged. Now that should have been my red flag. And it, it was a little bit of a red flag, but I kind of just brushed it off. And, you know, I, I knew him now, right? Like I, I was accepted into him maybe getting me into certain certain venues you know he he had a he had a lot of ability to do that and so I just said you know I know him he was an acquaintance and that was it and sort of tucked it away that marriage or that you know his engagement it ended up not happening he was left at the altar and after that he decided that he was going to circle back and try and find me I think at that point, uh, because he had graduated, he had recovered from his surgery, his, uh, that he had decided that he wanted to, you know, start a life and he had wanted to conform to what people were doing in the office. And, and he had a profile and he had a certain, a certain situation that he had to uphold for the um, image that he wanted to project, the person that he wanted to project. Your ex-husband George was a white male. I'm guessing you didn't. I don't remember if you were you've described as he was he attractive. I'm guessing he was attractive. Well, I, you know the reason why I'm smiling is because <laughs> <laughs> because after he had the surgery, he was probably about <laughs> he was probably about thirty pounds, you know, underweight. He was quite skinny, and I used to always say, you know, how sometimes you say couples end up looking like each other. And if I was going on the notion of that, then I would not have dated him. But he ended up 
aging really, really well, considering how hard he was on his body. So, okay, white male, attractive, very talented, clearly very charming. You described him, his social status, very able, you know, all traits uh, externally that we value in society, we value in men and we value in a partner. Uh, you said initially, you know, you weren't really into the party scene. Did, did these traits, were they something that you felt comfortable that were attractive to you? Or what was the connection that made you initially come together? It was a cerebral connection for for me. You know, he literally had like a pencil neck and an Adam's apple and, and he wore big, huge, you know, the Sally Jesse Raphael glasses at that point. And he was, he, he was too skinny for his body. He, you know, he filled it out eventually, but uh, he and I, we could have wonderful discussions initially. And that, that is what he capitalized on. He recognized the fact that I wasn't uh, attracted to how he could get into bars and how he knew everyone. It was the fact that uh, we could talk about politics and uh, relevant things. And he was really funny. And that's something that uh, I've always sort of ha- had a lot of held a lot of value because it has helped me cope with my life situations. You mentioned in the book, you know, in terms of your own struggles with your own identity, that feeling that you weren't educated or smart enough was part of your identity. And I'm, is that something you think he picked up on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and initially, eventually, he obviously he used it. I would say weaponized it against you. But what were some of the initial red flags besides that? Well, when you're getting back to the when we met, I, I explained it in my book about how I, I had a certain route I wanted to do that my dad wasn't really supporting at that point. So I had got into interior design. It was something I didn't even want to do. He said, "You're doing it." It was a diploma at that time. And so George's enticement with me was, you go, you do that, you'll become the best designer. Or if you don't want to do that, go back to school. And it was the recognition that I felt like I was not, my my education wasn't complete and he was going to 100% support me. And that was the red flag of the us versus them that was starting to develop that I didn't really recognize. And, and for me, Terry, you know, you, you're not being really supported with where you are at that age. And I think a lot of kids around 17, 19, they don't know what to do. And he was the first one that was giving me that kind of emotional and support and backing as to following your dream, you know, I'll help you out. And, and that vulnerability that you expose that, to your point, saying becomes the weaponized thing that you hear about quite often. So would you say, you know, I know it's very hard for any of us to really discern, but looking back now, would you say that that support was deliberate as a tactic to try to rein you in to his world? Or was it something that he genuinely felt and wanted to offer, but over time as his mental state and perspective evolved, it became something that maybe unintentionally he used against you. 
I, my kids and I discuss this all the time. If they strategically knew what they were doing or they unintentionally knew what they were doing with perpetrators. But I think I can think of so many other examples where he would say, you do this and I'm going to help you and I'll be behind you a hundred percent. And then if it was an event or if it was something that I had an interest in, he would be constantly mocking me about that and, and, and that thing that he knew I was nervous about. But at the last minute, somehow he would, he would show up like he would donate money or he would get people to donate money or, you know, there would be some sort of external accolade where it, it wasn't necessarily to build me up. It was something that he could, it was an extension of him that he could benefit from. Actually, I realized when I asked, right after I asked that question, you know, we should actually problematize the fact that I asked that question. But also the what you just said reminds me of abusive pet owners, you know, who taunt their pets, right? So like they give them some freedom, they give them, and then they like, pull them in physically, literally, and show them that they're in control. So the cycle of sort of domination and um, reward is basically there to remind who's in control, not necessarily because they want to be supportive. And so I kind of just want to point that out in terms of recognizing that this is a tactic, but not putting it on you to sort of discern. I mean, I don't think we need to I think that one of the problems that we have as w- women in a, a society is we always look for explanations rather than just looking at the impact. And so I just want to call that out about myself as well for having asked that question because it is so innate, you know. Yeah, it is innate. Thinking about it. But, it, it, you know, we, I didn't talk about that in the book, but we do have two dogs and I, maybe I briefly just described it, but he definitely would do that with the dog that he had. Uh, he had that behavior that you would see over and over in a 10 minute walk. And so I think even though you asked it and you explained it, that's helpful for people that are listening because they don't see it. And I didn't understand it at all until after. So that was certainly one tactic, sort of offering support or the performance of support, being supportive publicly, and then using chastising you and and withholding that support later privately. Some of the other tactics that you mentioned included pathologizing you in your response to his behavior. And so if you were reacting to let's say his critiques of you, his attacks on your self-esteem, taking advantage of your innate insecurities around certain issues, he would come back and say, it's, it's you, you're the one, it's your childhood. And so I think this is very common amongst abusers and also very common amongst people who have had imperfect childhoods, which is many of us. So can you talk about the distinction between having an imperfect, maybe trauma-infused childhood and how that played a role in your dynamics and your perceptions around your romantic relationships. Okay, so first I just want to say really quickly, I'll talk about that definitely. 
when you talk about the events that he just like, but I just want to finish one thing. When he would set something up where um, it became an extension of him about the success, the day that led up to that event, it would be exhausting because he would be using every tactic under the sun to undermine my, like in a degradation fashion, undermine my confidence, you know, like uh, he wouldn't let me have sleep. I would show up at that thing and I would have maybe have had two and a half hours. I had been constantly mocked. So you know, it, there was that push and pull in the fact that he was trying to support me. He walked away. He looked like he was great. And that was fantastic. But there was a, like, I was literally, literally dragged through. And, you know, for me to actually get up and speak or do anything about it, I, I was completely riddled with no confidence, no self-esteem. And so I just wanted to complete that and and paint that picture because I can relate to a lot of people that I know are in similar situations where, you know, the the perception of the person being such an outstanding pillar of of society and the community and doing all this great stuff. And you see this sort of um, half shadow that is beside him. And and now when I see people and you can see, um, the nervousness that they've embraced and, and how they almost look like they've had too much caffeine. I know what that person has gone through to get to that place. And I, I don't think people really understand it or know it is as those that have walked in a similar path, but getting back to the question that you just asked <laughs> about pathologizing and blame, that is definitely, I think from coming from a trauma pattern of it within the, my family, I was left with not really having a strong sense of who I am and auto- autonomously being able to present myself. And so I, because I had a lot of ambiguity and, and I lacked confidence a lot of the time, it was an opportunity for him to always turn situations around and spin it that it was my fault and it was my lack of understanding, my lack of intelligence or or whatever it was. And, and that really comes from just not having a voice and not having confidence. And I think that there are a lot of situations where people are sort of left lost in their young adult years. And when we're starting to make opinions and, and build on a sense of who we are and, you know, expand on that and make it our, our uh, you know, what we're doing for a lifetime. I just, I had no idea how to harness that at all. And it became easier for me to just follow someone else and however that was going to look. And, you know, unfortunately I ended up with him, my sister that I kind of talk about in my book, she was one that was often circled to join cults because I think both of us kind of wore this, Hey, we're, you know, we're um, possible targets to, you know, be receptive to that kind of behavior as to, you know, being brainwashed or whatever you want to call it. And I thought it was hilarious. And I would always be protecting her uh, quite a, and, and when I say it was like a couple of times during our childhood, yet I'm the one that ended up marrying the person that was probably the biggest perpetrator or cult leader that um, she ever came across in her lifetime. So I don't know if it's a roll of the dice or it's just, 
a matter of you track what you are, a circumstance. But I think as much as we can build awareness and educate people about all these things, it will help people making decisions that are at that age and are a little bit lost too. Yeah. And I think from my experience and the little knowledge that I have about cults, there's, it's kind of like domestic violence. You know, everyone is vulnerable. Um, just being human makes you vulnerable because of yeah. the way cult leaders who are predators take advantage of people's goodness, willingness to believe, willingness to trust, willingness to connect and be intimate. And whenever you have these kinds of situations, you know, they can be used to build connection or they can be used to harm. And so I think just that's a great example of how we're all vulnerable. And what you said about awareness is, I think, so key because so much of what you shared in your book was repeating other people's definitions or perceptions and even perspectives of you rather than you spending the time to really evolve as a person and strengthen your own relationship with yourself, which is kind of like what the goal of feminism hopefully is one of the goals. And so I think to the extent that we can sort of shut out other people's messages that tell us who we should be, that can be, you know, a really great path out of vulnerability. And so that leads me to your family. I know that there's a history there with your mother and your father, but then when you were in this relationship with your ex-husband, George, uh, I don't think it was explicitly stated, but it, it seemed like there was some level of complicity and excuse explanation that they were making on his behalf. Am I misreading that? No, you, yeah, you're absolutely correct. And I, I didn't want to, I really, really, really didn't want to emphasize that because I didn't want people to think that I was writing something to settle the score or, you know, like a expose. I wanted to really just own it and be com like completely honest with the situation. And that's why I didn't hold back. But you and I both know that there's, there's family of origin scenarios that produce these type of marginalized, you know, perpetrators. And, and I don't know if we start talking about that or not, like as in not you and I, but that's part of the awareness and the education. I think it's hard because it, it's almost like it starts a finger pointing thing to a certain degree. I, I, I yeah, I, I there mean, was definitely, I, I don't want to, let me just, sorry to interrupt. I, yeah. I don't want to, Obviously, the most important person that should be held accountable is the perpetrator in any scenario. But I do feel like as a society, we need to interrogate our roles as bystanders and especially family members who play such a key part in supporting dynamics or even the actual relationships. You know, you had shared how there were comments around and, and opinions around your marital status that really like. You're, whether you're married or divorced really should not play into anybody's opinion other than you. <laughs> and so I can relate because all of us as women, I think we get fed the messages and my, me too. When I was leaving my abuser, you know, we were engaged and the message was you're going to have less value if you don't marry him and divorce later, it's better to go through the divorce 
than to never be married, which is what I am, right? <laughs> and so, and my thought was, you'd rather me take the chance of like dying. <laughs> and and so I think this message is so ubiquitous. It's not just that was what was shared with you. All of us as women get fed that message that we have value if we are married. But in your case in particular, your husband had so much wealth and status. So how did that play into your own calculation? In addition to obviously the calculation that your your family had and your friends maybe. Well, okay. So I, I think that when you talk about family and friends, I think that's the culture of shame that I, you know, we, we really don't understand. I, I think I, I was listening to something. I'm pretty sure it was Jess Hill because she's like, the granddaddy <laughs> of um, domestic violence and abuse, but she, I, I, I can't remember, it's Donaldson, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist uh, that he talks about it existing in four and, you know, withdraws the first one. The second one is attack yourself. And third is avoidance and narcissistic like, and then the fifth is attack others. And I think we're really, as a society, we function at attacking others. And I, I was guilty of it too, where, you know, I had to uphold that status of being Mrs. Gosby. And I sat there to protect myself and judged others. You know, there's no doubt about it in my mind. And uh, you know, when I talk about it in my family, I, my family had a certain amount of shame I did for my family experience. And then it continued into present day. And, you know, before when I was trying to leave George and you're trying to wrestle with everything, with what is actually happening, how you want to be known to your community and, and perceived by others. And, and I think because you are wrestling with this balance that um, you don't really understand because nobody talks about it, that people just generally tend to make judgments around it. And I mean, we started off with you saying you still have a hard time with this, which I completely understand. But that has been the one thing that's followed me around more than anything, because my peer group that you know I spent a hell of a lot of time with, they still openly criticize the fact that I am now coming forward as an advocate and that I've had written this book saying, how can I do this to my children? And I just think, well, I got news for you. (laughs) Their children were there and, you know, and they're advocating and learning from it too. Like they're a hundred percent behind me trying to get this message forward. But, you know, I think the reason why it's easier for them to sort of maintain that, that position of judgment is because then they have to somehow admit to themselves that they made a poor judgment call or that they, them being blaming me and supporting George was not the right decision. And it would be so easy to just come up and say, Hey, I I can't believe that, that I, you know, I made that judgment or I can't believe that I was so um, not informed that I didn't understand it, but people have a really, really hard time having those conversations. And that is the unfortunate thing. And I just, I think it's something we we suffer from. Also to add to your point, I agree with everything you said. I, I think a big part of also why there's collective resistance to hearing these stories, hearing the truth is because then people have to question their own relationships and dynamic. And abuse and domination 
dynamics are so pervasive in our society and so accepted and normalized that it would put them in a position, you know, where they have to confront it. And emotionally, that might be uncomfortable psychologically, if the relationship results in some sort of, you know, breakage, then that, that would leave people isolated. And so I think, you know, that that's really a big impediment for us. And I'm not sure how to convince people that it's actually better for us as a society to confront dysfunction in our lives so that we could reduce it and eliminate it. Um, and talking about your children, I think, you know, so you wrote this book two years ago is when it came out. No, oh, it just came out in October. Oh, okay. If Last October. Okay. During, so I know the election. <laughs> out, and I want to ask you, because there are some parts of it that having known you a little bit, gotten to know you a little bit, I wasn't sure if my interpretation of what you were saying was accurate. So what are the things that caught my attention was your characterization of George as a good father initially. So you talked about how he, for the most part, was present. And then he, you know, you appreciated that he had these family dinners that became a tradition, but it wasn't until he became abusing alcohol that he became absent. And and so I wasn't clear whether that was a perspective that you had from writing or looking back now, you still feel that way. Like you think that he was a good father because obviously lots of people have very strong opinions about that. Well, and uh, the editor and I sort of wrestled with that one too. We, we went back and forth because I remember one time him saying, there must've been something you loved about him. And he said, because I, you know, I think so much of the, book, Terry, if I had told it in an entirely truthful how it actually happened, I don't think people would believe it. And one of the things was they would go back to, well, why did you stay? You know, with that. And I I had to offer up some of the good things about him, but they had become very diluted by the time um, I had made the choice to, you know, separate. And it was hard. Yeah, I mean, so just to, you know, for the audience who's listening, there are, I guess, within the survivor community, there are survivors and maybe even advocates as well, who believe that anybody who's abusive towards a parent, in this case, a mother, cannot be a good parent, because the dynamics of modeling that the harm of having a child witness it normalize it and the confusion that conflating abuse with love, for example, and the impact it might have in future relationship dynamics is just for the most part negative. And I believe that personally. And so this is why many advocates and survivors are advocating for changes in policy, you know, around um, whether abusers um, should have access and what kind of access to their children. And so I think I think this is a question, if we look at it from the perspective of, you know, to to give you some grace around your decision, (laughs) you know, I think the question that your editor or whoever else asked may have asked, you know, was there anything good? Well, there were lots of things, I'm sure, as I look back and we all look back, that we enjoyed at the time, you know, moments of respite. 
that doesn't make them authentic. It doesn't make the intention authentic. And so you could have enjoyed things and had some fun times, but in the context of being, you know, in this kind of emotional, psychological, maybe even physical bubble that you couldn't navigate out of freely, it makes it unreal and irrelevant. That's my personal opinion. So I want to share that just to give a, a contrast, because I know that this issue is just so commonly discussed. And very often the perspective is give humanity and give compassion to the abuser. You know, he couldn't have been that bad, which ultimately leads to some sort of explanation for his, an excuse for his behavior and takes the attention off of the survivor. I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And, and that's, that's when I was um, having these discussions with the editor, I felt like the question began uh, that I, I would ask him, I keep <laughs> kind of, you know, like, how am I going to say this? Is, is this a story about him or is it about me? And he, you know, totally supported that. But I think that he felt like it was almost too unbelievable at times. And you had to give the reader something. So if we're going to talk about the good things about George, specifically, um, you know, making food, and he was supportive about that. But the reason why he was doing that was so he could drink while he was, you know, in the kitchen. And there, and I just kind of thought, well, you know, we'll list the things that the kids remember him for. And like, my daughter yesterday, she was in an area that when we had rented the place in Arizona, and she, this was in 2013 on where his, the escalation of his, you know, behaviors were just at an all time high. And it, you would think the fact that she was in one of the nicest places in Arizona, there was a house that, you know, she was being chauffeured to um, these hockey games and that it, she had the ability to have her friends there. They were going out for dinners. Uh, they were buying stuff together. Like he was literally giving them the credit card and said, girls, go you know, buy yourself some stuff. Would be fond memories. And most people from the outside would look at it and think, wow, that's fantastic. And she felt like she was going to throw up just being physically in that area where those memories came up for her. So it's a hard thing for, I think, the world to understand. And it's, uh, it's a really hard thing to articulate as well. So you are absolutely right. Uh, you know, when you talk about justin, justice reform and the way that we perceive the perpetrator, that they have the ability to, to get better. And, uh, you know, the recommendation of them getting counseling or, you know, that we really don't have any good programs of, of changing their behaviors. My personal opinion is, is that when a person is like that, they don't change, they get worse. Obviously, your friends, family culture, your the pressure, you know, from how you would be viewed as a mother, all of these variables came into play in terms of uh, contributing to you having a certain perspective that maybe gave him a lot of leeway, you know, and, and, and so I want to talk about some of the other people and institutions that also contributed to that. And one of them is the police. <laughs> so when the police came uh, in one instance, the police officer 
So this was after, I believe, you had disclosed that you had an affair. There was a, a, a non-fatal strangulation. <laughs> there was what? There was a non-fatal strangulation attempt. Yes, yes. yes. an attempt on your life. And, yeah. the, and the police came and the police officer basically expressed uh, some sort of remorse for your for for George because they, he said, "quote Men have egos, <laughs> even though he saw the bruises." Which you know, I mean, it's a funny and an absurd way because this is just how pervasive misogyny is that this is acceptable, and that person is probably still employed. But uh, and so number one, men have egos, and then there was a further comment about how it's understandable that he'd be upset, you know, given what you did to him. And so just elevating his feelings over your safety. Yeah, no, that definitely happened. Uh, And I had a chance just because of the work that I'm doing with the city of Calgary, I've had a chance to uh, talk about that. And I asked why that happened and why weren't they given a little bit more of a screening tool And apparently in the city of Calgary, there is more of a screening tool. But the problem is, is that these people that usually go to the DV calls, they're the ones that are first on the force and they're not really, they don't have a lot of experience because they're lowest down on the totem pole as in people wanting to go and mitigate them because they can't stand the calls. And that often there's a lot of paperwork that's required afterwards. And so they tend to... Um, try and not write it, uh, have it fall under the banner of a domestic violence call because it requires a lot of work, you know? And so even having said that, Terry, like they, that was a situation. We had a gun in the house as well. And you know how much that increases my chance of dying from the perpetrator because of non-fatal strangulation. I urinated myself. I had, I definitely had, um, probably some would have blacked out for a bit. And I I didn't know any of these signs. Like that's how naive I was. But later on, when I finally decide, it was the Calgary police that really informed me how to strategically go about it too. So it just needs to be a consistent education amongst all, you know, law enforcement or, you know, whatever you're going to focus on. But this is a real illustration or an example of how gaps occur. Well, I think also you mentioned in your book how when you call the police, you have it's better for you to, you know, identify it as a stranger assault than a domestic abuse incident because they're going to be less responsive to domestic abuse, whether it's because they care less or they're more at risk um, and they just recognize the, the seriousness and fatality potential of those kinds of incidents, it really shows that there's a gap in accountability, but also in care mm-hmm. in the level of response. So I, 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 I mean, when you were talking about assessment, I, I think every assessment, no matter what kind of assessment, yes, we should have assessments and we should filter people out, but every assessment is going to basically make every person in the world inappropriate for their role because they just have so much gender bias. And so really it goes beyond before people have positions of power and authority, before they get to the workforce, before school, where they have the ability to hurt and bully use words to harm, we need to do better as a society. So 
let's go back to your kids. What was the messaging that you gave to your kids? How are they doing now? What is their perspective on the situation? You said they were very supportive of the book. Yeah. Well, in, in that one incident, we can talk about Isla, who was sitting by me, and she said, why did you even call them? He didn't even hurt you. And I had just described, you know, what had happened. And, and I remember kind of feeling bad that I had called them. And it was the person that I had an affair with that told me to call them, to call the police in case something like this happened. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't. Right. I needed to have an outside informant to sort of be able to see the continuum of what was going to happen. Right. I, otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to. I mean, I was I was online. I was reading about things I was trying to. But there was nothing that was really um, informing me. So how my kids, they were victims and they, you know, fell into the usual once my son was bigger than him, he was able to stand up to him and say, stop tormenting her. That's when the, the, um, the torment started to lessen. He also was distracted because he was more in Arizona. My kids grew up and they've grown up in that kind of environment trying to debunk that myth or, you know, trying to work themselves through what their opinions are now of um, this type of situation and how boys are in society and in the inequities of, you know, gender-based violence with females. And we have discussions about that all the time. That doesn't mean that they're, you know, the most informed and they're on top of it. I mean, they're having to deal with that with the trauma that they experienced. My daughter is a huge feminist and, you know, she's a human rights activist right across the board. She will probably go into something in that area because I think it, it really came out in spades as to what happened to me, uh, to her. And that's really, really, it's really obvious to do the perpetrator victim, you know, the male female thing. It's more benign with the boys. And, and that is why I say I wrote the book. It was for my boys. And I think that we're still on a learning curve. They're asking questions and they're learning and they're getting help as they're feeling like they can take it. I didn't force that on them by any means. But one thing I did do, Terry, the entire time that I was mothering them was that I was completely open and honest with what was going on. Because I knew that there was no way that you could you could move around what was happening in the home because I had come from a situation like that. And I just I I had been told not to do that, the whole emotional incest and that I didn't need to discuss these things. And that wasn't my personal belief. And so someone could look at um, that and say, you know, I further traumatized them. I don't know. Like, uh, I get that. That's yet to be determined. <laughs> right. Well, I mean. You know, the emotional incest actually uh, sort of warning came from a therapist. But if you look at all of the life experiences that we're all subject to, young, young, young people, children and young people today, you know, the pandemic, the racism, the sexism, the, you know, in, in, in the U.S., there's a violence, like the Capitol riots, January 6th, you know, you, you can't really avoid talking about these issues if you want your children to be equipped with skills to properly understand them and and not partake in them i would guess and so i'm sure that there's age appropriate ways to talk to children about every level of 
oppression. And that that actually speaks to what I wanted to talk about next, which okay. is your mental health support. <laughs> I thought that amongst all of the different people in your life, they were noticeably negligent and professionally <laughs> irresponsible. <laughs> and, you know, if they understood the dynamics of power and control, I don't know what the ethical responsibility is. If you know someone's in an abusive relationship, whether you should be encouraging them to be in the relationship. But I feel like there was a lot of, well, if this is what you want, then these are the ways you both need to change and kind of dividing the blame very evenly. Um, so what are your thoughts with regard to the support that you had meant from, you know, professionals and the mental health and from mental health professionals? I was constantly searching, trying to find the right help and explanation. And that's where I thank your leader in way back and where I was finally directed to finding a comprehensive explanation as to, you know, what was going on inside of my house with sociopathic narcissistic behaviors, you know, and you could even dig down deeper than the mental illness and the comorbid things that I was having to deal with. But for my own personal situation, I, it was like, it was a crapshoot. I would, you know, get a recommendation from a therapist and I'd go in and we would have to retell the story over again. It was exhausting. And I don't know if you know, but 85% of therapy is just connecting with the person. And then the modality that whatever you use is what is going to um, elevate them to become sort of healthier or better. And, uh, you know, be able to be more equipped to manage their situation. In my own situation, I needed to be told point blank, you are in an abusive situation. And I did get that finally, right at the very end. But then I wasn't offered any advice from that point on. And I think that if, if therapists in Canada, we don't have any regulating requirements, they can say that they provide therapy for anything under the sun. And they don't have to provide any outcomes uh, attached to the work that they do. And I think that that's the same largely with the social sector. And I think if we started to have tighter governing standards for domestic violence or for the system itself, that would solve a lot of the problems. And, it, you know, I, that's why I couldn't find the right help. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. And a lot of people in my circles have the expertise to be able to uh, unpack that too. But I just don't think people know enough about it. Yeah, I mean, I was really just so angry when I was reading the part about that particular therapist, couples therapist, who was willing to accept that you would make a decision to stay and encourage behavior change, you know, equally as if you were at fault, <laughs> you know, basically teaching you how to manage the abuse rather than recognize it. Well, and that's a really good point, Terry, because what happens is Oftentimes, and you know about this, that the person that is the victim seems to come with a, you know, a deficit and it looks like the one that really does need the help. And the perpetrator oftentimes is the one that is charismatic and, you know, manipulative. And so anytime we were in couples therapy, 
not only did it give him more ammunition to further abuse me, but it was oftentimes the therapist would walk away and I was the, the, the person that was the problematic thing. And I was the one that needed to change. And it was confidently being told to me by the therapist and by George. And so it shows you how manipulative and charismatic these people typically are when they're in a situation when it comes to gross control specifically, I think. Uh, And you would think, I mean, this also, I think, reveals how little people, even professionals in the field can detect, you know, and identify coercive control and that they themselves are vulnerable to being manipulated by it. So I don't know. I mean, obviously it goes to like our implicit bias and gender bias that, you know, there's certain, you know, I've, I've heard um, my, my therapist is, who's a female has told me when I, when I'm in different situations and my ex who's male, you know, and I have to engage with an external third party that be careful of women <laughs> because the women might be easily charmed by my ex better for that person to be or even a gay man. Yeah. And so if that person is a straight male, heterosexual, there's going to be more of a critical eye in some ways because of the nature of competition, you know, between men, uh, which is like crazy that you have to think about these dynamics, you know, to, 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 to achieve any minimal sense of fairness um, in the process. But the other thing that I remember from another therapist, I think this was a different therapist was how at some point, you know, when there was physical, when you disclosed that there was physical violence and that therapist said, well, no one's allowed to touch you. And that just reinforces this elevation of physical violence over anything else. Because my reaction was, what about when he touched and tried to grab her spirit and her soul, (laughs) you know, like that, none of those violations matter, you know, but the physical, all of a sudden, that's where you draw the line. <laughs> so oh, I'm getting funny. so angry oh. on your behalf. I want to talk to those therapists. <laughs> that's why when you said to me, um, "Do you know any good therapists up in in Canada?" I know really good organizations where they will they track, like they make sure that if you haven't gone um, where you need to be within five or eight sessions, then you should, uh, you know, it's not ineffective. You should be seeing another therapist, but. I said, I'm so sick of therapy because I really think that it made me chase my tail more. And I got, I got more confused by it because there's so much out there now. And you really have to know why you're going, what you're going for. And you have to realize that if you haven't achieved what you've had to achieve within a duration of time, then you're maybe you're not getting what you need to get you know, and peer support, quite frankly. And that's why I supported, I had a big chapter about Al-Anon was something that really had, um, I had a revelation about, and it, it just, you know, a couple of handy little sayings, you know, to keep me on track when I was in a situation that I, you know, didn't know how to manage myself through, but it was being able to see how other people had dealt with the similar stories and where they were and listen to all of them and put myself in context of that where I could do my own math. Yeah, I've heard many survivors say that going to Al-Anon has been helpful. Um, and, and I wholly support whatever works. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the only question I would have is, 
you know, to the extent that like the the consciousness raising groups that were that um, came out of the feminist movement in the 60s, you know, they were very focused on developing a feminist lens and understanding the roots of patriarchy and its impact and influence in shaping the dynamics of abuse, right? And so to what extent Al-Anon or other kinds of support groups actually interrogate the systems part, I think is what is probably missing. So that's a good segue into actually what you're doing now, which is addressing systems and policy. So um, obviously you're part of my group. So I'm very happy to, you know, have you be part of our community of thought leaders. But what else are you doing specifically in Canada? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. Um, I with the city of Calgary yet yesterday they came out with a city strategy for mental health and addiction just to get people to be able to be directed, you know, uh, find help, be well, stay safe. Like those were kind of the three areas and um, to be able to find the help that they need quicker than when I was trying to access the situation. And and it just, it was a synergy of, uh, you know, the mayor recognizing that we had a problem with addiction in Calgary and um, me coming forward and another person, another community advocate, Dr. Chris Eagle coming forward and saying, this has been sort of um, underfunded and it has been ignored the system for so long. And there's a lot that we could probably do that didn't require a lot of money, but it would take an organization and a collaboration of looking after things. And we've touched on that lightly with, you know, the police law enforcement and, and, uh, the social sector and, you know, education and, you know, the list kind of goes on of the universities. And, and so we all kind of just sat down and we started to think about how we had continued to do things the same way. And we had to start working together to try and make it easier, I think more than anything. And with that, I was asked to be on a provincial uh, council for mental health and addiction as well. And that still hasn't been presented. It, it's um, about to be rolled out or I, it, it may not be rolled out, but, you know, our current um, provincial leader, he had right away recognized that mental health was an area that he wanted to pay more attention to. And so when he came into power, he put aside 180 million. So it's exciting that these areas are finally being paid attention to. And if you go back to what you um, talked about with Al-Anon and, uh, you know, the fact that it's been, it's been around since 1956 and, you know, AA in 1937, there is definitely that innate, really traditional, you know, patriarchal ideals. And it's quite shocking, actually, you know, when you read some of their old, old literature, it's almost laughable at the same time. But I think, I needed to realize that everything is whitewashed and it's, you know, coming from a lens where there's for sure um, gender based uh, inequities and, you know, there's racial and there's like whatever, you know, the colonization, like whatever you want to look at it, but we have to start somewhere and we have to start organizing people to say, okay, we recognize it's flawed and what can we do to make it better? And so that's, you know, that's why I kind of put my energy to that because I knew that my story was always going to exist. 
And, you know, I, I just, quite frankly, I think the opportunity became available to work with the systemic change. And, you know, I'm really happy that it has kind of presented itself because I do think that, that we will be able to, you know, definitely have an impact, you know, however that may be small, but hopefully. So the fact that you're involved in so many activities that are mental health related, I want to address that because there's very often the usage of mental health or mental, you know, disorders to uh, justify abuse. Uh, And in your case, your, your ex-husband, George, you know, was diagnosed with a lot of things. And, and so it wasn't explicit in the book, but I want you to be explicit now in terms of what role, if any, those diagnoses and his alcoholism may have played in your in him choosing to abuse well they definitely uh, perpetuated like they enhanced the abuse if if he was intoxicated and then he used other forms of drugs on top of it then i knew for sure that there was going to be an altercation if we were out and i knew he would always drink regardless but as someone handed some other drug to him, I knew that there was going to for sure be a fight at that point. If he um, came back from traveling and he was taking sleeping pills at the same time, almost, you know, it was the same as him using an illegal substance at that time. It's legal now, by the way, in in Canada, like (laughs) cannabis is so, which I couldn't even imagine, you know, if, if I was having to live with something that was legally available you know, what the reality was, but I guess for me, and I talk about this in the book about how, when he managed to um, have abstinence to a certain degree where he was, um, you know, having these huge natural, like going to the South pole and climbing these mountains, I started to observe the fact that there, I knew there were, there was no alcohol or drugs involved with that, but yet the abuse was still occurring. And so I needed to come to the realization that even though I was blaming it in my head on the fact that he was going to get recovery and that we were going to be able, maybe be able to have some stability and have, you know, is holding on to this idea that that was not going to occur, that we had this ingrained pattern. And I had to accept the fact that this was occurring with alcohol or without or with mental illness or without. And when I talk to people, I will be very clear about the fact that don't think that this happened because there was mental illness and there was addiction. It can happen with healthy people. Just it's just as common. I mean, healthy as, you know, mentally. I think that I'm glad. So I'm glad you're debunking the myth because this is a very common myth. Alcohol, mental illness causes abuse. Yes. Versus it enhances it, like you said, or it's co-occurring. But this is why so many advocates in the domestic violence space, they're trying to treat the trauma of the abuser or the alcoholism or the mental illness as a way to decrease the abuse, which, you know, obviously, as you know, my opinion is very flawed. And again, not focusing on the victim, (laughs) you know, it's focusing on the perpetrator and so I, I'm glad that we were able to clear that up because it, it's, to me, so misogynistic that we are the only group of 
systemically oppressed people, which is domestic violence victims, mainly most of whom are women, whose perpetrators get this pass. You know, nobody's talking to white supremacists and January 6th capital writers and saying, well, they were victims of systemic poverty or this or that and trauma, <laughs> you know, that that's the excuse for their insurrection. Nobody's saying that. And let's, let's, you know, give them therapy instead of jail. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's a, it, it is a good point. Um, with regards to that, you know, there was always some golden egg or, you know, that we were chasing. And it, when I talk about the Paris, the chapter, he, it, it, we met because we had to deliver. I was with my son and my daughter and we had to give him some things that he had requested. And he came down and, you know, he, he had already been holding the space that he was making it up the ranks from within the uh the facility and he had asked for money and cigarettes, which was a, a way for him to gain. And, he, you know, he just sort of turned to us at the very end and he said, things are going to be okay. Like, then, you know, I've figured out why I'm like this. I just need to get DBT. And, you know, I've, I've connected with a person that's the best in Calgary. We'll get this figured out. And this is my problem. And I just like, I remember thinking DBT, what is that DBT? You know, and it, it just, it, to your point, Terry, like there was, you know, there's always this way that we could help him or, you know, the focus is on him. And he was in a, in an institution, he had left my daughter alone in Paris and she was 14 years old. I mean, there were all these things and now we were chasing this new modality. Right. And, and, you know, even we weren't thinking about, uh, you know, me and my son and my daughter, right? Like it's so, it's just so ingrained for us not to think of it that way. When you talk about a specific date, you know, tell us about the point in which you consciously made a decision that this is, this is it. I want to be out of this relationship. Well, I, and that took a hell of a lot of backstory that I didn't even get into, but I just, I knew that it was terrifying for me. I knew what happened to me to kind of get the courage to actually say, I, I, I want separation. And I ultimately want a divorce. Anytime I would tread, like I, I would venture into having that conversation. I was met with a lot of, of backlash for us. You know, we would go into that sort of abusive cycle. I had finally decided because I just, I, I knew that he wasn't, presenting himself as a married man and that he was seeing people regularly. And I just, I knew that I had to be prepared to cut the ties and just walk away and not have anything. And it would take all the courage I had to be able to do that because I had suspected that, uh, you know, the, the image he was trying to uphold uh, to everybody else that it was kind of, it was a farce and that we probably didn't have as much money as he was making the world think at that point. And I needed to settle the score. And so we had met and there was just, you know, there were attempts to rekindle the marriage. We had gone out for dinner. I had seen the person that he was seeing. I went back and I said, okay, I'm going to actually ask this and it's going to be in a safe environment. It'll be when I'm with the therapist and, you know, that way, then I know that there's a third party and the uh, ability for him to attack. However, that maybe probably won't happen. 
So I prepared, I rehearsed, I did everything, got up in the morning, went to the appointment. We were living in different places and sat down. I didn't remember anything. You know, my body was having the polyvagal, you know, fear response where I, you know, was freezing. My lips were dry. I couldn't say what I had to. I kind of basically said, listen, I don't want to be with you anymore. And I need a full disclosure as to what's going on. And that was when I finally said that. And then once I said it, it was almost like it could kind of snowball. And I just, you know, he was doing everything he could to try and make me change my mind because he had left himself in a situation where he got involved with a lot of, you know, basically in questionable practices that it would become exposed if he had to expose the financial situation. And so it was one last kick of the can to try and cover that up. And the more I asked him, the more it angered him. And, you know, and then it ultimately led to, you know, the cycle of the abuse kind of occurring and occurring and occurring, and then him ultimately taking his life. So if he hadn't taken his own life, what do you think would have been the outcome? Would you have pursued? I know you had talked to a divorce attorney. Yeah. Did you have pursued that path? Because it can be very prolonged and create a different form of ang- anguish. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would have um, pursued it. I probably would have had to have self rep because what little was left and what he was trying to protect, neither of us would have been left with the ability to have really strong legal representation. Yet he probably would have been protected from a professional um, sense and he would have been able to have the ability. He would threaten that all the time, actually, about how he was going to come back and he was going to, you know, absolutely destroy me. The reality is, Terry, and you know this, is that if he was still alive, I would not be doing anything that I'm doing today. Yeah, right. When I, I didn't know what the ending, but I kind of guessed what the ending was as I was reading your book, because you yes. so many people, and I was thinking, how is she not getting defamation lawsuits as a result of this book? Must be because he's gone. So how has, have you had any um, from his estate? Uh, no, well, I have had it, but that's a different occurrence. It's just, you know, I didn't really know anything about the legal field. And now I'm like a professional. So if you want any advice, I, Yeah, there hasn't been defamation because of the book. I got that checked out left, right, and center because I knew that I was, it was very trepidatious, some of the things that I was talking about. No, but, you know, I I would not have been able to have the freedom to be a community advocate for anything that I'm doing or, uh, you know, whether it's domestic violence, mental health, addiction, whatever banner you want to put on, if he was still alive. I know that 100% with my heart. So how are you doing now? I'm doing great. And, you know, it's unfortunate because it's unfortunate that it takes the death of someone to have someone live. But, you know, I'm doing great. My children are doing great. And the reality is, is I get out of bed the next day, not thinking, you know, my God, woe is me, what happened to me? I'm still dealing with the legalities of the state to this day. 
I could have a notification on Monday saying that I don't, you know, everything's going to be taken away. Everything's frozen at this point because people are fighting over what remains. And I would still feel like I've made a difference and I've got success and I've got some sort of direction finally. Well, I'm happy to hear that. And I'm grateful that you've come into my life and into our community as well. So thank you so much, Karen, for sharing your story. Well, Terry, honestly, you have helped me grow so much because of your community. So I can't thank you enough for the messages you push out your podcast. Like it, it was like discovering a goldmine for me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.